Let us then turn to Acts chapter 9. The regulars among us may well be wondering why we're in Acts in the morning when we have been going through the Acts in the evening. Well, I would reserve the right to change. Only for today, only for today. I want to concentrate upon the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, and that's a title I want to give to our meditation this morning. It is Saul's conversion, Saul's conversion. And if we're looking for one particular verse that may be regarded as our text, we would choose verse 11. Acts chapter 9, verse 11, which reads, And the Lord said unto him, that is to Ananias, uh, to Ananias, yes, Arise, and go into the street, which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. And that's really where I want to end up as we go through our meditation this morning. For behold, he prayeth. What have we got here in this chapter 9, the, the verses that we read? Well, we have Saul's conversion. I don't know about you, but I do like to hear about the conversion of people. It should be a source of comfort and encouragement to the people of God to hear how people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, friends, we have a, a wonderful experience that has been recorded for us, and it's been recorded for our edification and for our encouragement. This is Paul's testimony, because his name was changed to Paul. This is Paul's testimony, given first by Luke. But then it is also repeated by Saul or Paul himself later on in the Acts of the Apostles. We find him referring to his conversion in chapters 22 and 26. And therefore, it is good to hear about conversions. And Paul, or Saul, was able to refer to this incident to tell people that once upon a time he was going in one direction, and then what happened? He was converted, and he was changed. His whole life was changed. His whole outlook was changed, so that he was then began to walk and to live in another direction. The, converse, the conversion of every Christian is noteworthy and unique, especially that of Saul of Tarsus. In his conversion, we see the power of the Lord Jesus Christ to change a violent persecutor, to become a powerful preacher of the gospel. And what we see here, we can still see today. The Lord has not lost his power. He's in heaven, and he is still changing lives. And for all the troubles that we see in this world, whether they be major events like what is happening in Israel and the Red Sea or the Ukraine, or whether it be small and almost incidental things that are happening in your own home, among your 
siblings, among your children, or among your parents, this is what we need above all things for people to be converted. This is what we need to cry out for. That the Lord indeed in our day and generation would look upon us in our misery and see what's wrong. We need people to be converted, even those who are our arch enemies, who are out and out to destroy the cause of Christ. They need to have a real encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're talking about, friends, is not pie in the sky. It's happening, and it can happen among us if the Lord will choose to move in our great day. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17 is a verse that's up to a quote here in my introduction as we look at Saul's conversion. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And this could obviously be said about the Apostle Paul. And I put it to you, friends, that this must be said about us also if we have a Christian conversion. This must be true of us in some manner and in some measure. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. If you truly are a Christian, you are in some sense a new creature. What has happened to you? What has happened to you when you become a Christian? Friends, what has happened is the life of God has come into your soul. That's what has happened. We're looking here at Saul's conversion. And sometimes we, we're inclined to get, as I've said to you on other occasions, we're inclined to get regeneration and conversion mixed up. Or we might use them simultaneously. Paul was regenerated before he was converted. Regeneration is a sovereign work of God the Holy Spirit. We can go back to that conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus, another Pharisee, another religious person. And this person wanted to have a conversation with the Lord Jesus. And Jesus was quite abrupt with him. He wasn't going to engage in a conversation with him over about his work and what he's teaching and such like, because he said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. In other words, Nicodemus, there's no point in me talking about these things to you unless you know the new birth. Now, Paul had to be regenerated before he was converted, because Conversion is the fruit of regeneration. Now, when was Paul regenerated? We don't know. It is possible. It is possible that maybe he was regenerated here and immediately converted. That is possible. It may well be that he was regenerated sometime after uh, Stephen was 
stoned to death because that experience had a profound effect upon Paul, as we shall see as we go through this book. And I don't want to dwell upon that at the moment, but it's obvious that the, the stoning of Stephen or the testimony of Stephen and the way that he handled all of these things had a profound effect upon him. And may, it may well be that he was regenerated sometime after that before the Damascus Road experience. But he was regenerated first. He knew that wonderful experience, uh, an experience that happens in the subconsciousness. When I say he knew it, he wasn't aware of it, but it became obvious to him when he was converted that he was indeed regenerated, that he had the spirit of the living God in him. And because of this, because of this, then he was converted. Now, friends, Conversion, what is it? Well, conversion consists of two things. It's like a coin, there's two sides to it. There is repentance unto life as one side of the coin. And then there is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the other side of the coin. And this is what happened here. He was definitely converted here, we can see, and he may well have been regenerated here. We don't know. There are many things we don't know about our faith. Let's not think that we can be uh, know everything. The work of the Spirit is mysterious. There are mysterious things in the faith that we proclaim, but the evidence is clear. The actual working of God, the Holy Spirit, is a mystery, and we rejoice in it. But those who have been born again by the Spirit of God, they will come to that point in their experience when they are converted, and when they will believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and when they will repent unto life. This is what happened here. You can see it in his reaction to the Lord Jesus Christ. He was one who hated Christ and hated his cause. Now he was converted. What wilt thou have me to do, Lord? So, he was regenerated some time. And then he was converted. And conversion is something that happens, yes, but it's something that the individual does. Paul believed. God didn't believe for him. Paul believed savingly upon the Lord Jesus Christ. God did not repent for him. Paul repented. And these are gifts that God gives. He gives the gift of repentance. He gives the gift of saving faith. But it is Paul who exercises faith. It's not God. It's Paul. And likewise with repentance. It is God who gives that gift. But it's Paul or Saul who repents. Well, here we have a really a wonderful, glorious incident for us. An incident that really, in many ways, 
change the world. This is what God can do. God can take the most unlikely candidate and transform him and make him a wonderful instrument for good for the cause of Christ. And although our cause may be, or the, the cause of Christ may be languishing in our day and generation, friends, we are to cry out to God that he might do similar things in our day. Is there not a great need? God is able. He's able to do these things. Now, what I've said, I hope, does not discourage anyone because Saul's conversion was unique, but so is every conversion. Every conversion unique. Saul's wasn't notable because it was unique. If you're converted, your conversion was unique. Saul's conversion was supernatural. So was your conversion. It was also supernatural. So Paul's is not unique because of that. But there is something that makes Paul's conversion unique in the sense that it was not normative. It was not normative. Here was an experience that none of us can possibly expect to have. None of us. What happened to him? He was on the road full of hate, full of bigotry. He was going there to catch these disciples in Damascus. And this is something we maybe should note. Luke does not mention the gospel coming to Damascus, but obviously the gospel did come to Damascus because there was disciples there. Luke does not tell us everything how the gospel spread. But it was obviously spreading in that day, and it, it had reached Damascus, and Paul had heard about it, and he was inflamed with hate and wrath, and he wanted to go and catch these people and bring them back to Jerusalem, whether they were men or women, in order that they might be persecuted for their faith. And he had an encounter. He had an encounter, a miraculous encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to dwell too much upon that because we will come across it as we go through the book on other occasions. But he says here he saw the light. Well, what he actually saw, as he will tell us later, is that he saw the Lord Jesus Christ. And of course, if you were going to be an apostle, as he was chosen here to be an apostle with a commission, he had to see the risen Christ. And that's what he saw. What a glorious and a wonderful experience. Now, none of us can possibly expect to have that kind of experience. His was not normative. And don't think, friends, that you must have something like his experience. Many of us, most of us, all of us surely can never say that we've had this kind of experience. But... There are certain things in Paul's experience that are common to every single Christian experience. And that's what I want to highlight. What are they? Well, we have one or two points that we wish to highlight. What are the similarities then that we can expect to see in our conversion? Well, as I said, he saw Christ in some real way. 
you must see Christ. You must see him. Oh, he saw him with the eye. We're not expected to have visions like that. But when we say that you are to see Christ, you are to see him as the Son of God. You are to see him as the long-promised, long-waited-for Messiah. You are to see him as the Savior. You are to see him as God's answer to our greatest plight and problem. You are to see him as the one who has come down from heaven with absolute authority, with the authority of heaven. He has come down in order that he might seek and save that which was lost. And you must recognize there's none like Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten Son of God who has taken upon himself our form and our nature in order that he might be able to suffer on Calvary's tree. And you must see him as the God-appointed Savior who has stood in our room and in our place. And you must see him as our substitute, as bearing our sins. And you must see him as your only hope. These are things you must see, not with your eyes, but with your spiritual eyes or with the eyes of your understanding, you must believe his testimony. You must believe what the word of God says about the Son of God. And you're not to listen to these cults or other false religions. You must put them to the back of your mind and you must immerse yourself in the biblical truth and data that is recorded for us concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And you must be satisfied that he is the only God-appointed Savior. You must see him. You must be convinced of this. And more than this, friends, you must be convinced that you yourself are a sinner. And this is what you need above everything, above everything this world can give you. You must have Jesus Christ and you must go to him, and you must call upon him, and you must give him no rest until you are with him, until he saves you. Because if he doesn't save you, no one can and no one will. Only Jesus Christ. You've got to see him. What does verse 20 tell us, for instance? And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues. That must, might not seem much to us, but what a transformation. He was preaching that Christ, the anointed one, he was the Messiah. Up until this point, he would deny that. He would never have said that. But he saw that he was. Proving that this is very Christ. That he is the Son of God. A momentous change. His spiritual vision was now sharp. Before this, after his experience on the Damascus Road, he was physically blind. And surely that was a, a lesson to him that he would realize that when he thought he was spiritually well and seen well as a Pharisee, he was actually spiritually blind. And for three days and three nights, it looks like he was physically blind. 
And then when Ananias put his hands upon him, scales fell from his eyes. And he then had wonderful spiritual sight. It was perfect. He saw that Jesus indeed was the Son of God. Is this your experience, Christian? It must be. It must be. You must believe he suffered and died. You must believe that he rose again. You must believe that he's coming again. You must believe all that he says about himself. There's no excuse. What else? Well, another thing in, in our experience that's exactly the same as the Apostle Paul, he was brought low. What does verse 4 tell us? And he fell to the earth. He fell to the earth. You'll never be saved unless you fall to the earth in some sense. Until you come down from your high perch, until you're humbled, you'll never be saved unless you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you deserve nothing but God's wrath and curse and that you cannot trust upon anything in yourself, in your own self-righteousness. No, that must be crucified. You must come down. And you must realize that Christ and Christ alone can save. What was he before? He was a proud Pharisee. We'll come to that when we continue our studies in the, the book of the Philippians, chapter 3 there. It talks about all the things that he could pride himself in, in his background, in his, in his upbringing, in his education in his lineage all of these things he was able to glory in but what does he count them all but dung in comparison with knowing the Lord Jesus Christ he was truly brought low and friends if your Christian conversion has brought you low then you'll know something of it you'll know something of it we have to be brought low you have to see that your offerings cannot save you. You have to see that all your, all your religious activity cannot save you. You have to understand that all your reading, all your books, everything that you have cannot save you. It must be Christ and you must be brought low to understand this. And it's, not a, pain, it's a painful experience for every one of us because we're all inclined to be too proud to think too much of ourselves. Is this something you know? Well, if you're a Christian, you'll know something of it. And what's more, as you go on in the Christian life, you need to know more of it. Because we need to be continually humbled. For God resists the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And as a Christian, we need the grace of God day after day after day. And as you get nearer eternity, friends, it's lower and lower you'll go if truly you've had a Christian conversion experience. Paul was humbled here, but we look at his writings. What do we find? Are they not characterized by humility 
all the time as he grew in grace, he was brought further, lower and lower. He lived in order to magnify his Savior. Well, there's another thing that's, that's the same with every Christian conversion. What is it? He serves another master now. Verse 6, what do we find? And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? Once upon a time, he would never have said this. He was fighting against the Lord Jesus Christ. He hated his people. He hated the cause of Christ. He thought he was doing God a favor by undertaking all this persecution. But now he was changed. He was serving himself before. Now he's under the dominion and the domain of Christ. And he has humbled himself before him. What wilt thou have me to do? I'm your servant. Christian, is this something that's part of your experience? By nature, we serve ourselves. We are selfish by nature. We think far too much of ourselves. We seek to delight ourselves and to please ourselves. Paul, no, different. He's now serving another king. He's serving Jesus Christ. Christian, look at your life. Is it characterized by serving Christ? Are you concerned about the cause of Christ? Do you give any support to the cause of Christ? Paul, obviously here, he was an apostle. He was going to receive a tremendous commission to be the apostle principally of the Gentiles. But he dedicated himself to that commission. Well, friends, the Bible would remind us that we're not our own, that we have been bought with a price. We have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, not with silver and gold. And we have been translated out of the kingdom of darkness. Oh, we must be careful when we say this because people can easily distort our words, but we were under the thraldom and the domain and the dominion of the evil one. We followed the world. It doesn't mean to say that we were demon-possessed. No, don't think that for one moment. That's a step different. But we were under the domain of the evil one. We followed him. And we followed the world. And Jesus Christ did something wonderful when we were converted. He took us out of that evil kingdom and he brought us into the kingdom of light. And you now have a new master. And what a master to serve. Is it not a, a delight and a glory and a privilege? Is it not a delight and a glory and a privilege to be an office bearer, to be a preacher of the unsearchable riches of Christ, to think that he would bestow this on a hell-deserving sinner whom he has saved? 
Don't you realize the blessings that are yours? And don't you realize that now you serve another master, and therefore you are to crucify the flesh? You have to war against yourself. You're to be dead to sin. Not ponder it. Not dilly-dally with it. But crucify it. And live a new life. For you serve a glorious master. We look back at the creation. We look back at our first parents. What do we see? We see paradise in some sense, it has been prepared for Adam and Eve. What happens? They rebelled. What reason had they got to rebel? The Lord had laid on everything for them. Everything was perfect for them to thrive in. They wanted for nothing. Yet they committed treason. Well, here we are, Christian. And you're in a new world, another kingdom, an eternal kingdom. We're in that kingdom of grace here and now, and we're heading towards the kingdom of glory. Are we then going to serve ourselves in our own lusts and to be like the worldly? No, we're going to be like Paul. We're going to serve another master. We're going to serve the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You'll never be in the royal family, friends, but oh, if you're in God's family, you have everything. You have more than everything. You have all that you could possibly want. Then let us be done with the world. We're heading for another world. Here we have no continuing city. There's another thing too. Fourthly, another thing. Paul, or Saul, I keep getting things mixed up, but he, Saul he was here before he changed his name. Saul went to church. Where do I get that from? Well, from verse 6. And he trembling and astonished said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city. And we know what happened. He was to go into the city and the Lord had prepared Ananias, a disciple, in order to put his hands upon him that he might receive his sight and he might receive the Holy Spirit. Now here, Ananias was a representative of the, of the church. And here was Paul, newly converted. He was directed to go to one of the disciples, he was directed to go to church. And when he went to the church, Ananias, who had to be convinced, and the Lord convinced him that he was genuine, go there and go to this place, to this city, that's, to this street that's called Straight. Incidentally, friends, according to my reading, that street is still there today in Damascus. Damascus is one of the earliest known places in the Bible. And that street, which is called Straight Street, 
is still there today. It's not called the Straight Street. Instead, it's called Derb al-Mastaquim. That's what it's called. And the House of Judah, which is mentioned here, is traditionally located near the western end of the street. It's still there. Well, Saul had to go there. And Ananias put his hands upon him. What happened? He saw, and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And a unique experience, because Ananias is the only non-apostle who was used by God to give the Holy Spirit to another person. Paul, Saul, went to church. Christian, has your conversion caused you to go to the house of God, to be with the people of God? If you think you can live your Christian life without gathering for occasions like this, then I feel you are deluded. The Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate example. He went to the synagogue. He went to the means of grace. Saul did exactly the same. He went to the church. He associated himself with local believers. He was not afraid to be there with the, the brethren and to share his experience. He went to church. That's all part of a genuine Christian conversion. They will go where the people of God are and they will share fellowship with the people of God. My time's gone. Finally, he was a praying man. For behold, he prayeth. Now Paul, Saul, he would have prayed on many occasions. But this, the Holy Spirit notices. This man now, this man now with the Spirit of God in him, this man with a new birth, this man under a Christian conversion. Behold, look here, now he is praying. This is what happened. And if our Christian experience does not cause us to pray, friends, you have to wonder about it. Because all the people of God pray. Oh, we don't all pray the same. And all of us acknowledge our prayers are not what they should be, but we will pray. It's like the natural man needs air to breathe. The spiritual man needs to pray in order to breathe spiritually. And this man was a praying man. How does your conversion then match this? These things should be in ours. Amen.